Hello and welcome to Ohio Folklore. I'm your host, Melissa Davies. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to take a moment to ask you a quick favor. Some of you may be new listeners, and some may be tried and true fans. Whatever the case may be, if you like the show, please consider taking a moment to write a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It's just one way you can give back and help spread a little of the wonder I've been sharing. You see, reviews help make the show easier to find for folks like yourself. In the nearly three years that I've been making this podcast, I've been thrilled to see it grow, now garnering thousands of downloads for each episode. I've heard from listeners all around Ohio and beyond, appreciating how they learned something new about an Ohio location they thought was all too familiar. So let's just see how much we can spread the lore unique to the Buckeye State. Thanks a ton. And now, on with the show. Today, we're exploring a legend not well known to many Ohioans. For nearly 50 years, this cryptid tale had faded in obscurity. My effort in sharing the story now is to bring it forth from the shadows. Let's shine a light on a documented piece of Ohio history that remains unexplained. Like all great folktales, this story includes curious encounters from multiple, unrelated Ohioans, each reporting striking similarities in the entity they confronted during the steamy summer of 1972. Multiple sightings of a human-sized, fanged beast with wiry fur garnered multiple media reports at the time. The frenzy this brought eventually led the local police department to issue a press release. Chief Donald Breckler begrudgingly acknowledged multiple reports of a blue-jean-wearing, bipedal, wolf-like creature. Assuming the whole thing a prank, his department kept the initial sightings under wraps. But when the calls kept coming in over the span of a week, the chief went public stating, we're concerned for the safety of our people. Some had reported the creature as armed, wielding a two-by-four. It was known to come at unsuspecting people just going about their business. It never spoke. If it were a human disguised in a costume, there seemed to be no motive. It never demanded money and never stuck around to watch the victim's stunned reaction. With no apparent robbery in progress and no sticking around to soak in the joy of a prank, just what could account for these inexplicable encounters? We're going to try our best to answer that question in today's episode. I'm talking about the Defiance Werewolf. Defiance is a small city of about 17,000 people in the northwest corner of the state. Its unique name stems from the fort built by General Anthony Wayne at the confluence of the Maumee and Auglaize Rivers. Fort Defiance, as it was known then, was a fortress and a line of American defenses against royal forces and native tribes in the late 18th century. In its construction, General Wayne was famously quoted saying, I defy the English, Indians, and all the devils of hell to take it. 
Nearly 30 years later, in 1822, the city itself would be officially founded at the site of the fort. The name Defiance stuck and remains yet today. It's this irreverent and nose-thumbing attitude that lingered just long enough for one group of early white settlers to claim it as their own. It's a legacy that's complicated, given our current understanding of those social and political forces today. Fast forward two centuries, and we find the city of Defiance, the working-class seat of a county by the same name. Some residents, those old enough to remember 1972, recall the events of that unusual summer with a bit of humor, a dash of confusion, and a whole heap of wonder at what the whole thing meant. So let's dig into the details, recorded in newspaper articles of the time. Let's immerse ourselves in the frenzy that had been sweeping a city once built on an attitude of defiance. The following account is derived from an August 2, 1972 article from the Toledo Blade. The first sighting of the unknown creature occurred July 25th of that year. A brakeman of the Norfolk and Western Railway Company had been working late that night in the small rail yard only a few blocks from the police station downtown. Under a proverbial full moon, this man, a Toledoan by the name of Ted Davis, was busy connecting an air hose between two cars. He was bending over at the waist, with his eyes facing downward at the work in front of him, when two hairy feet came into view on the ground beside him. Startled, Ted dropped the hose and stepped backward. What stood before him was a fanged, two-legged, blue-jean-clad beast, more than six feet tall, grasping a two-by-four with hands covered in fur. Paralyzed with fear, Ted didn't even flinch when the beast struck him on the shoulder with the piece of lumber. Just as Ted was finally able to open his mouth to say something, the creature turned off and ran out of sight. Only five days later, both Ted Davis and fellow crewman and Toledoan Tom Jones spotted the same creature standing in some weeds near the main track. Tom had heard Ted's claim of the first sighting and hadn't believed a word of it. He was sure Ted had made up the whole story, and yet, the following Sunday, he couldn't deny what he was seeing with his own eyes. The beast was still wearing blue jeans. The rest of its body was covered in a mess of thick fur. Once again, it ran off on realizing it had been spotted. It sprinted toward a car that was stopped on a nearby road. An unknown person sitting inside the car screamed loud enough for Ted and Tom to hear as the beast fled on into the night. The last they could recall was the screeching tires of the car, its driver speeding off in a rush of fear and confusion. That thing's gonna hurt somebody, Tom exclaimed. Sometime later, a grocer driving into work in the early morning hours slammed on his brakes when the beast leapt in front of his car. For a brief moment, he held eye contact with it, noting the bright white fangs that contrasted with the dark fur on its face. A 
Another article published the following day in The Blade included reports that a passing truck driver had also spotted the hairy fanged beast. All sightings had occurred between the hours of 1 and 4 a.m. One woman, whose home was adjacent to the rail yard, called the police in a state of shock. She hadn't seen the beast for herself, but growing rumors told by her neighbors had set her on edge. She'd been afraid to leave the house and asked that the police send patrol units to come looking for the thing. Chief Breckler tried to reassure her that the whole thing was likely some guy in a costume, out pulling pranks on unsuspecting people. She wouldn't be reassured. A number of sightings had occurred in the two-block area where her home sat. Residents, who had never done so before, began locking their doors and forbade their children from playing outside. One elderly resident named Rupert Fig told a Blade reporter that if the beast came on his property, he'd grab his shotgun and fill it full of buckshot. The claim that this was some local nut traipsing around in a werewolf costume sounded plausible, but it didn't fit with the growing first-hand accounts. People who saw this creature were wholly convinced that it couldn't be a person in a costume. The fangs and the fur which covered exposed body parts were just too realistic. Not only that, the creature didn't hang around waiting for a big reaction, like a prankster would do. It seemed as though the beast was afraid of the people it encountered and ran off as soon as it was spotted. A week after the sightings began, the local Defiance paper printed a bold headline, Horror Movie Now Playing on Fifth Street. The article opened with a poem quoted from a 1941 film called The Wolfman. Even a man who is pure of heart and says his prayers by night may become a wolf when the wolfbane blooms and the moon is clear and bright. And the werewolf mania would go on, with random sightings popping up over the next couple months. And in the time since, most locals to the area claim to have never heard this story. Remarkably, the whole thing shifted from a kind of hysteria in the summer of 1972 to a forgotten chapter of local history, nearing 50 years old today. During the course of my research on today's episode, I had the fortune of connecting with the perfect person who could shed some light on this enigmatic and nearly faded tale. His name is Lyle Blackburn. A prolific author and cryptid researcher, this native Texan had made the trek all the way to Defiance back in 2016 to speak at a symposium on the legend of the Dogman. The term Dogman refers to unclassified creatures of the canine variety. The little-known legend of the Defiance werewolf fits nicely in this category, and it's the reason why Defiance had been chosen as the location for the gathering. As it turns out, this story in particular is one of the most well-documented cases of a group of werewolf sightings anywhere in the U.S. Lyle has studied cryptid stories all across the country for most of his life and has written several books on the subject. 
he was able to provide an overview of how this legend compares to others. You can find more information about his works at lyleblackburn.com. But for now, let's listen to what he has to teach us about this unique piece of Ohio folklore. Come, hear his story. Maybe start by telling me a little bit about what got you into, you know, studying and producing content. Well, I was always fascinated by movie monsters and monsters in general as far back as I can remember. And, you know, first sort of gravitated towards things like Frankenstein and Dracula and things. And at some point I got a book when I was in elementary school and it had stories of Bigfoot and the Yeti and Loch Ness Monster. And those really fired my imagination because I thought, well, these are like monsters you might encounter in real life. You know, Uh, I'd grown up hunting, bow hunting with my father. So I was, you know, often in, in wooded environments. So the Bigfoot thing really clicked. And then ultimately I saw a movie called The Legend of Boggy Creek, which came out in around 1972. And that dramatized sightings of a Sasquatch-like creature in southern Arkansas, which was only about three hours from where I lived in Texas. And so that really scared me and fascinated me. And so later on, basically as an adult, I spent many years touring as a musician and I was also good at writing and I wrote for some rock magazines and horror magazines and wanted to write a book. So I started with the accounts in the the real life situation of the legend of Boggy Creek. And then things sort of went from there to just branching out and covering all these famous cryptid cases that I could and just um, delving into the phenomenon of people seeing quote unquote real life monsters in today's world. Okay. So your entry um, into the whole cryptozoology fascination was the, the Boggy Creek story. Yes, that was, you know, that kind of drew me in as far as, well, you know, maybe I could see something in the woods or this is kind of related to my area. So then, you know, it, it kind of resonated with me. Oh, that's great. And so you are near Arkansas, or is that in Texas where you live? Uh, I was born in Fort Worth, Texas, and I've always lived in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And so the little town of Falk, Arkansas, where Boggy Creek is, is three and a half hours just over into Arkansas. So it's um, very, very close. I see. So, and, you know, so that was what sparked your fascination. And since then, you've become really well acquainted with lots of famous cryptid stories across the country. Um, And not just, you know, the traditional Bigfoot, uh, but some of the other unusual monster creatures. Right. You know, I mean, everybody kind of generally knows Bigfoot and Loch Ness Monster or maybe some lake monsters. But, yeah, there's certainly a wide variety of very strange things, uh, the creatures that people have claimed to see over the years. And it's mm-hmm. fun to explore the different kinds and and to, you know, find out the truth behind some of these cases. You know, you must have uh, a reputation there in the community. Uh, as I understand, you were invited, I think it was in 2016, to Defiance to take part in a uh, presentation to the community. Am I correct? Yes. 
and then okay. Right. Yes. There was. There is a, I guess, a category of cryptids, which are known as dogmen. Dogmen. It's sort of a essentially a werewolf or wolfman type cryptid, and it's it's become quite popular. But there was a, and they do have these sort of symposiums all around the country, Bigfoot conferences. This was specific to the dogman phenomenon, and there was no better place to have it than Defiance, Ohio, yeah. where there was sort of a famous werewolf yeah. case. Yeah, so that was uh, one of the big questions I had for you was uh, what your take on that legendary story from 1972 and how that compares to so many of the other accounts that you've come across in your studies, uh, how you would describe it, how that compares. Right. The, the the incidents that happened in Defiance back in the summer of 1972 are, are very similar to other um, monster cases that have happened, not just as a werewolf case, but others where a town experiences a series of scenes or encounters and reports and oftentimes uh, pulls in the law enforcement because, you know, people are calling the police and then it gets new news coverage. So uh, there in around July 25th, 1972, there was some railroad workers uh, working at the railway yard there in Defiance and they were there late at night. And one of them was uh, connecting an air hose between two of the rail cars. And so he was kind of looking down, and all of a sudden he sees these big hairy feet come up. And then when he looks up, he sees some kind of thing or person who essentially has hair and a hairy head like a werewolf, and it was holding this two-by-four. And, and there's kind of conflicting reports, but it apparently hit the guy, and then... Then the thing ran off into the woods, mm-hmm. and then later, um, later five or six days later, a couple of railroad guys saw the same thing uh, standing near the tracks. And, and in this description, they said it was wearing blue jeans. So here you have basically reports that kind of suggest that it's sort of a werewolf, which would kind of lead you in this direction of is it a you know is it a big wolf or something that stands up it you know covered in hair or is it a person you know playing a prank and and so it straddles the line between the two but nonetheless many other people saw this thing person or whatever it was running across the road it you know people thought it was chasing them and became you know a news story and so right uh you know, it does fall into that dogman category, although in this case it does suggest that with the blue jeans and stuff, it could have been a person. Yeah, I mean, it's a curious thing because, of course, the legend most of us think about with werewolves is that it's that category of cryptid where it's part human that, you know, transforms into this dog-like creature Um and then, you know, with the full moon and, you know, all of the myths that goes behind that whole story. Um, so at least in the, the more pop culture references, if you think about Teen Wolf, um, you know, you think about that that's a pretty common thing, 
that they would be closed in that sense. But, yeah, go ahead. Right. I mean, and, and that's the, the, you know, the particular thing about this case, because, I mean, you, you kind of separate this. If you're looking at cryptids as, okay, we're, we're, we're seriously analyzing these things, you know, you have to kind of separate the supernatural aspects from the uh, phenomenon of a, 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 you know, cryptozoology, which would be a something that would be an animal that is either out of place or it could be a mutation or something completely unknown. And then in that case, you know, you could have perhaps this huge hybrid, um, exceptionally large wolf that on some occasions like would stand up on its back legs. And then obviously you're basically looking at a werewolf or kind of into that supernatural zone where we think about the sort of movie version of werewolves, where it's a person who then transforms, mm-hmm. which would, you know, conceivably still be wearing parts of its clothes or something. And, and so obviously the defiance werewolf kind of fits almost into that transformation yeah. type wolfman. Motif. Yeah. I hadn't thought about the distinctions that you're making there. So I appreciate that. Um, that, you know, in a more pure way, if you're thinking about it as a cryptid creature um, that exists separate from humans, um, but one that we haven't really fully understood or identified yet, you know, then that creature wouldn't be wearing blue jeans or, or any kind of, you know, clothing. Um, and so you've, you've come across cases like that as well, of more traditional dog men maybe? As they refer to, yes, certainly. Um, and and there's some there's a famous case from Wisconsin, known as the Beast of Bray Road, and that's near Elkhorn, Wisconsin. And in that case, the witnesses reported seeing something that definitely looked like some sort of an animal, but but an animal that the witnesses, for lack of a better description, described it as a werewolf, and. Hmm. Uh, this this kind of bleeds over, and that that took place. Uh, the, the sort of famous rash of sightings were in the eighties, and so hmm. on into the nineties. So this was after the Defiance Werewolf. But if you kind of start looking back at reports of these same kind of creatures, you can find some in those general areas: Wisconsin, Ohio. Um, that go further back. And huh. they do kind of talk about a creature that seems more, definitely seems more like a, you know, just some sort of a very bizarre animal. Whereas, yeah. you know, and, and the other thing that I think about in Defiance, we, this is taking place at a at a railroad track. I mean, there were some woods and there are some areas there, but there's buildings and people around. And, um, you know, this is, this is a place where, people would be this isn't out in the middle of nowhere in other words but uh right it's always interesting to go because i've been to defiance i've been to that rail rail yard so it's neat to go there after you've kind of studied the case and go okay wow it took place right here you know yeah well you know one of the things that i had thought about or questions that came to mind after i'd read some of the articles the historical articles at the time was that there were numerous reports from different people coming into the police station. And, 
you would think if it was a person wearing a mask and a costume that the the report would be, hey, there's some crazy dude out there. (laughs) You know, you would think it would be pretty recognizable that this is a person wearing something. Um, As opposed to, you know, these genuine genuinely scared people um i don't know that just struck me uh that it would be hard especially in 1972 you know to have a very convincing costume that would you know give person pause to think maybe this is a creature of some sort right and and that is one of the things that's you know sort of puzzling about this case because you know i I remember having a werewolf over, you know, full-on pullover werewolf mask back in the seventies when I was a kid, and it, you know, if you look, if you, if you were close to it, you could see it was, you know, it was fake. I mean, it was latex. But yeah. the first rail, railway worker that saw it, you know, it, he looked at it right there. I mean, it was just standing right over him. So he got a pretty darn good look at it, and then it took off running. So he had a you know, pretty good view of it. So like you say, you would think he would say, you know, some crazy dude was wearing a costume. And, and yeah. these guys saw it later. And the police didn't share this with the media right away. Um, so some other people started reporting seeing this without even having knowledge of it. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. it was influenced by the first newspaper report because after the first incident, it wasn't in the newspaper. So it wasn't this fervor of people hearing a story and then, you know, your mind plays tricks on what you see or something. that It wasn't even publicized at first. Right. And then uh, I think it was on the same night, the, the railway workers saw it again standing mm-hmm. by the tracks. And then, then uh, later that evening, a resident said it you know, ran across the road in front of his vehicle and it was in the lights. And again, he kind of reported it as some kind of a hairy animal sort of thing. So it it really is hard to just say if it was, you know, a person in a costume or it was something more bizarre, you know. Okay. Do you happen to know if the original police records survived? They they have been searched for, and there there are no reports that survive. Uh, if they had written reports, and they they probably did make some notes, but you know back then everything was handwritten, and they just did, don't preserve unless there was a you know a crime that occurred. Usually those kind of things are eventually purged, and I know this because not only have I looked into whether there was police reports for the defiance case, but many others that kind of dated back in those times and even more recent. And usually the, you know, the, the records department just, they just don't have those files anymore. I see. That's, that's kind of what I expected, but um, I was, I was hoping maybe with the publicity that it got, um, especially in some of the bigger newspapers, like out of Toledo, that maybe they would have preserved something, but um, maybe not. Yeah, I mean, it would have been it would have been cool if if they had. And and I, I want I want to say that I somebody told me that I believe a researcher went and tried to talk to the 
sheriff's wife. Now, the sheriff, you know, mm-hmm. the officer, he, he's been passed away, and I think somebody asked her, and I, she didn't know anything about the case. So, unfortunately, oh. it was no, you know, there's no way to interview any of these people firsthand right. so many years later, you know. Right. Um, when you did come to Defiance, did you get a feel for people knowing the story well or like the kind of general lore that springs up around occurrences like this? I don't know if that was spoken much about at the gathering. That you had well, there. you know, what we came away from was that no, no, none of the locals really knew much about it. No one really remembered it. I mean, I think we talked to a few older people that, you know, remembered it in some way. But in general, it's not something that that anybody really knows about. And that's in contrast to some of the cases where, for example, the Mothman case from Point Pleasant, West Virginia. That's a right. very little town. That, uh, you know, same kind of thing. Those sightings back in the 1960s and into 1967, and it made a big deal. And there's been movies made and all this other stuff, so it was a lot more famous. But in essence, started with you know just a few sightings, and there is a Mothman festival that goes there every year that draws thousands of people. the The town is really made made it off that. Even in uh, the Legend of Boggy Creek, there in Falk, Arkansas, there's a festival. There's a store with a giant Bigfoot coming over the top. The locals have really kind of played up. It would be neat if Defiance, you know, had this whole werewolf thing going, but unfortunately, I think it was kind of obscure and there was nothing mm-hmm. that, you know, nothing to propel it to the story to continue. You know, no movie was made, no book was written or anything. Mm-hmm. So unfortunately, I think it's kind of lost a little bit as far as the local folklore, um, though, okay. it's a, though it is fascinating. It is. Well, you know, I will mention just a couple of years ago, one of the local TV stations out of Toledo um, did a, a, a story, a segment mm. on it. Um, and it did kind of stir up a lot of stuff. I don't know on social media in particular, it did bring out some of the folks that are, of course, you know, much older now um, that remembered it and they were commenting on it. Um, so I think sometimes it just takes a little effort um, and maybe some timing Um and for it to hit, hit the right ears, for it to plant roots uh, in a community like it did with the Mothman, which, of course, has been such a uh, popular topic in that area now, and um, commercial interests even now that have invested in that. Um, but, you know, you never know where this might head, and, you know, sometimes covering stories, I think, whether it's through a podcast or through, you know, the, like the books you've written, um, you know, it's a way to really spread the word a bit. Yeah. And yeah. the wonder. Yeah. 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 Very much so. And like you mm-hmm. say, if, you know, if the news does a story, you know, it gets out to a lot more people and then, you know, your podcast, you know, brings it up again. And if, if there's enough of that, then people do start remembering and, and start thinking about it. And so you just never know. I just, you know, and it's cool. I think it, be awesome if there was a werewolf festival because you know we did our we did our small thing and it was sort of like I said in terms of a, a symposium to analyze the phenomenon of dogman that takes place all over but just hey if there was a defiance werewolf festival that 
was in conjunction with that, if, you know, parades in the streets, I mean, that'd be awesome. <laughs> that that would be fun. A nice little uh, piece of culture um, from, yeah, a, a, an original historical story. I always think that's great to have that kind of authenticity um, and fun attached with it, too. Right. And, and the kind of things preserve that sort of modern folklore, if you will, because, mm-hmm. you know, younger people who may have not have heard of it, well, if there's events and news stories and, you know, podcasts and things, then, then it you know, a, a new generation hears about it. Um, so, you know, that, that is a, it's a way that it's preserved. The story is, whether it was a real werewolf or what it was, it still was something that is interesting news. So, Yeah, and something that we can't quite explain. Uh, and there's something enjoyable, I think, about realizing that sometimes you just don't have all the answers to things and it's okay to imagine or to do your best to guess at what it could have been. That pretty much covers most of the bases. Uh, the questions I had for you, were there any stones that I left unturned from your point of view? Uh, so, you know, I mean, I, I would uh, add that when this took place in late summer of 1972, this is this was around the time when a lot of sort of famous cases were getting coverage back then, a lot of famous cryptid cases. And so... It is right in this sort of golden era in which, you know, the newspapers would would cover it. The you know, the you called the police, well the police would look into the look into it, you know, and mm. around uh nineteen seventy one and nineteen seventy two, that's when the original legend of Boggy Creek sightings were being publicized very widely in the newspapers. Um there was a case of the of Momo, which is the Missouri monster, made headlines in 1972, right in the same time. So it's it's a really interesting time, and then Defiance having a werewolf, you know, seemed like every place had, uh, you know, their own sort of classic cryptid that was getting news coverage at that time, and it sort of defined years later, you know, not to mention Mothman, 1966-67. It sort of defined a lot of the cryptids that we're still looking at today. And these were the classic cases, and I consider the Defiance Werewolf one of those documented media cases of a werewolf. So it's pretty unique in that way compared to some of the other claims that you come across that it was, you know, so well documented. And that's the difference now because, you know, of course, there's dogman sightings right and left all over, and they're sort of put on the Internet, but they're not covered by journalists in a newspaper that, you know, is typically selective about what they're going to print back then. I mean, that was that was big stuff, newspaper. So the fact that they dedicated any space to a werewolf case is yeah. great, and it preserves it historically, whereas all these sort of things that are posted on Facebook pages and stuff, they just sort of get lost in the noise, you know. But this, you can get those old newspapers, and it's right there documented for, you know, posterity. Yeah, I really uh, appreciate that that was the case here. And they they even had some follow-up articles 
you know, that I've come across too. So it had some staying power, at least at the time that it was happening. Right, because, um, you know, later, I don't remember, uh, not long, but probably like five or six days later, there was some reports from Toledo, Ohio, which somebody claimed to have seen a werewolf, and then there was others. So, you know, all of a sudden, you know, you print one story, and then you find that, you know, you get other reports from nearby towns or cities mm-hmm. that, that were now could either point to, you know, now everybody's got werewolf on the brain or it's hysteria or whatever, but but it does then start other other reports that you may not have known about if they've ne- if they had never publicized the defiance case, you know. Back then in nineteen seventy two, initial sightings of the defiance werewolf led some locals to panic. But even beyond that, when these reports passed the journalistic scrutiny of the veritable Toledo Blade, the frenzy amplified even further. These historical newspapers have provided the paper trail, bringing this enigmatic history to life. It's a part of our collective folklore that I hope doesn't fade away altogether. When a Toledo CBS affiliate, WTOL, ran a segment on the story in a newscast in October 2018. It gained some traction on social media. This story, which had waned from the public's memory, was brought to life once more. A few locals, now aged 50 years, came forward with their own personal recollections of events. One woman recalled hearing the rumor that the beast drug huge chains around by his ankles as though he had been shackled at one time. Another woman, who lived near the tracks as a child, recalled sleeping in her parents' bed for weeks. She was so afraid to be alone in her own room. She also remembered being forbidden from playing outside and that her parents seemed freaked out about the whole thing. And another younger woman, who of course wasn't around at the time of the actual events, recalled that her elementary school ran adjacent to the rail line where the first sighting occurred. The word on the playground was that a werewolf lived in a wooded area nearby. It seemed like just one of those stories kids tell to scare each other, until one day, a neighborhood German shepherd had gotten loose and decided to come join the kids for recess. Mayhem ensued. The rumor mill about the legendary defiance werewolf surged once more. So what are we to make of this strange bit of cryptid folklore? It's a story nearly forgotten, despite the documented history and the events which remain unexplained today. There's one thing about this tale, however, that makes it stand out from other cryptid stories. Werewolves, as we've come to know them in the mystical sense, are a kind of entity that bridges the human and animal worlds. Not fully human, and yet not fully beast, they represent what it can mean for one creature to inhabit both worlds. Mythical stories about these beasts have permeated our culture for centuries. We've long pondered what it might mean for a few among us to transform into a more primordial being once per month when the moon shines full and bright 
bathing the ground in that magical way, turning the inky night into a dimension just a little bit closer to something spiritual. Whether the Defiance werewolf was indeed some unknown, half-beast, half-man entity, or whether it was some crazed person lumbering about in a strikingly realistic costume, we will never know. And that uncertainty is the kind which lays fertile ground from which folktales can flourish. Let's hope we've done our part to add a little fertilizer on this once-dying sprout of a tale. So the next time you step out into the night and notice that eerie glow bathing the ground beneath your feet, look up, turn your face toward the full moon beaming, consider its powers, the way it casts the supernatural pall on our ordinary world. Be still and let it work its magic. If you're lucky, you'll feel a surge from the beast within you. And though you might feel inclined, try to resist the urge to howl. You never know who might be watching and how they might not understand that primal connection with the animal kingdom. This concludes today's episode on the Defiance Werewolf. I hope you've enjoyed it. If so, please consider writing a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It helps new listeners find the show. If you'd like to learn more about Ohio folklore, you can find us on Facebook and at ohiofolklore.com. And as always, keep wondering. Keep wondering.